0: Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include food addiction, Amazon, good stagnation, ESG, and racial indoctrination. Our first speaker is Michael Moss, who is a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter formerly at the New York Times. I was introduced to Michael by a previous guest on What Happens Next, the Yale nutritionist Dr. David Katz, who encouraged me to read Michael's new book entitled, Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Michael points out that we humans really enjoy salt, sugar, and fat a lot. I hope to learn from Michael about how food companies formulate their products to be addictive and what, if anything, we can do about it, and why should we condemn food makers for giving us what we love and crave. Our second speaker is Brad Stone, who is the author of my favorite business book, The Everything Store. Brad has a new book that was released last Tuesday entitled Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos and the Invention of a Global Empire. The book discusses all aspects of Amazon's business, including Amazon's cloud computing, its profitable advertising model, and the Amazon marketplace. Today, Brad will speak about Alexa, Amazon's expansion into the grocery business, and Amazon's success in logistics. Our third speaker is Dietrich Volrath, who is a professor of economics at the University of Houston. Dietrich has written a new book entitled Fully Grown, Why a Stagnant Economy is a Sign of Success t expands on William Balmo's work that as we grow richer, we substitute services like education and health care for goods. Unfortunately, services productivity has been less than the manufacturing sector, and that implies less growth in our future. We welcome back our fourth speaker, Vivek Ramaswamy, who spoke on what happens next last summer. Vivek is the founder of the biotech firm Royvant Sciences and has a new book that you can pre-order now and will be released August 17th, which is entitled Woke Inc inside corporate America's social justice scam. I've asked Vivek to speak about stakeholder capitalism and the ESG movement, which refers to environmental, social, and corporate governance that measures the sustainability and societal impact of a business. As a society, we are reconsidering the goals of a company away from profit maximization and towards non-economic objectives. Vivek will explain why this change in corporate purpose is a threat to the integrity of American democracy. Our final speaker is Paul Rossi, who is a former math teacher at the Grace Church School in New York City. Paul recently got into a public dispute with the school principal over the racial indoctrination program in Grace's K-12 school. The dispute erupted on the pages of the New York Post and was discussed in detail on Barry Weiss's website. Today, I hope to learn from Paul about what is happening in New York City private schools, and in particular at Grace Church, related to both racial indoctrination and the degradation of privilege. Last week, we heard from Louis Alexander on the prospect for rising inflation. This past week, the U.S. consumer prices were up in April by 0.8% after being up 0.6% in March for a total of 1.4% over the two months as inflation is now annualizing 8.4%, which is the fastest pace of price increases in over 13 years. Consumer prices were led by increases for used cars, rent, furniture, and insurance. The economy is accelerating out of COVID and businesses are unable to keep or hire their employees. Casey Mulligan had warned us on a previous episode of what happens next that the recent federal government expansion of unemployment insurance would discourage work. Earlier this week, the U S Bureau of labor statistics released its JOLT survey, which showed that businesses substantially expanded their job openings to 8.1 million unfilled positions, an increase of 600,000 on the month. This month, April, was the largest number of unfilled jobs in US history. I have heard anecdotal evidence from small businesses that it is impossible to hire new staff. Very few even show up for job interviews and many are quitting to take new jobs. Other business owners have complained that many of their workers have quit to take unemployment because it pays a comparable or better compensation. Labor markets will be the key to understanding economic growth for the rest of 2021. If you're interested in listening to a replay of this program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them at our website, whathappensnextin and SixMinutes.com, and replays of the show are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, and Spotify. Okay, let's begin today's program with Michael Moss, who will discuss his book, Hooked. Go ahead, Michael.
1: Hey, Larry. Thank you so much for having me, by the way, and, 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 and for doing this show. Um, in... 2008, I was in Algeria interviewing Islamic militants when a couple of FBI agents showed up at the New York Times headquarters looking for me. I had been spending the previous three years traveling to Iraq, tormenting the Pentagon for failing to equip American soldiers with body armor, and then writing critically about the war on terrorism. And according to the FBI agents I had managed to land myself on an al-qaeda hit list i actually think it was just the algerian government trying to get rid of me but when my editors ordered me home that night um and i came back to the united states looking for something new to do it was like going from one war to another because my editor christine Kaye, had spotted this outbreak of salmonella in peanuts that were using being used as ingredients by this trillion dollar processed food industry about which we knew very little, and when I looked at that situation closely, it became the story about that industry losing control over its food chain, and then I started to write about e coli in meat because I thought Upton Sinclair had solved the meat problem a hundred years earlier, but there was a rolling wave of contamination of E. coli and and, and hamburger, making people sick. And and this was sort of a story of the the meat industry intentionally losing control um, over its meat in in order to avoid costly recalls. And I was continuing to look at contamination when one of my best sources who tests meat for the industry said to me, you know, Michael, as, as awful as these incidents are, you really should look at what my industry is intentionally adding to its products over which it has absolute control. He was concerned about the salt going into processed meat, which led me to look at sugar and the fat. And boy, was he right. I mean, even back then, the obesity rate was soaring. Pre-pandemic, we passed 42% of American adults being clinically obese. Um, Type 2 diabetes tied to bad diets um, is in the tens of millions. Pre-diabetes, even larger. I think there were like 8 million cases of gout last time I looked. And as a journalist, I was incredibly lucky to come across this trove of documents that took me inside the largest processed food companies as they were formulating, marketing, positioning their products toward us. And- It was those documents that enabled me to meet insiders who opened up even more secrets about how they do it. And much of what you get from that material in those interviews is that this is an industry that's striving day and night to use extraordinary science to get us to love their products and want more and more. And initially for the first book I wrote, salt, sugar, fat, I focused on that sort of unholy trinity, if you will, because salt they call the flavor burst, and fat the mouthfeel, and sugar the bliss point. And in combination and individually, those three ingredients are meant to hit the reward center so fast that we lose control over our eating habits. And it's not just that they engineer a bliss point for sweet foods. The companies moved around the grocery store adding sugar to things that didn't used to be sweet before. So now by one estimate, two-thirds of the products in the grocery stores have added sugar, which is a really big problem for a lot of people. Still, I hesitated to call this addiction because – frankly, if we'd had this conversation five years ago and you suggested to me that Oreo cookies were as addictive as heroin, I would have like scoffed and said, you know, where's the excruciating pain of withdrawal? And where's where are the people, you know, committing armed robbery of 7-Eleven to buy their Oreos like they might a pharmacy? And where's, you know, and how come not everyone gets hooked on these products? But the more I sort of looked at that question, the more I became convinced that actually these products are um, in many ways as troubling as cigarettes, alcohol, even some drugs, and in some ways even more troubling. And I'll tick off the ways that they are similar. Um, The industry is is succeeding in getting us head over heels, over convenience foods, fast groceries, as I like to call them, by tapping into our basic instincts. We by nature love food that's cheap. And so they use chemical laboratories to mix and match formulations in, sh- in search of ever cheaper formulas of their products knowing that we'll get really excited by a box of breakfast pastries that cost 10 cents less than it did the week before um, we by nature are drawn to variety um, you know back in hunter-gatherer societies eating different kinds of foods kind of ensured helped ensure you were getting the full range of nutrients you needed to survive th- and and we also became very adaptable to different foods and it's why we were able to roam around the world <clears throat> and fall in love with things as crazy as whale blubber, if you had to happen to have, live in the Arctic. Um, and also, by, and so, what do the industry does? You walk into the cereal aisle, and you're confronted by. 200 versions of sugary starch, them knowing that we get excited by variety. And maybe the most important thing that they use is that we, by nature, are drawn to calories. We have sensors in the gut, possibly even the mouth, that tell us how many calories are in there. And for most of our existence, we wanted the most calories because that was life and death. But these food companies have turned that on on its heels, on its face, and made their products so dense with empty calories that now we have this biological mismatch. We get excited, especially by their snack foods, um, and can't tell the difference between good calories, good nutrition, and the empty calories that they sell us.
0: All right. Let's go to Q&A. Um, Michael, who's, you make it seem like uh, the industry is working together. Um, are they... Are they working together, or is each one trying to find something? They want a customer to buy its product. How, how, how is it as an industry versus an individual firm?
1: Um, yeah, no, so there's about 10 companies that dominate the processed food industry. They are intensely competitive. You know, the music you hear at the grocery store is an illusion behind the scenes. They're fighting for space on the shelf. They're fighting for space in your stomach. And actually, to our detriment, whenever one of them decides they want to do the right thing, and I write about this in several instances, where cabals of insiders in these companies be concerned about their culpability <laughs> in, in things like obesity and our, our general health trouble with these products, so if you have tried to turn things around. When that individual company tried to respond, you know, the rest of the cartel, if you will. I mean, I really believe this is a cartel. Um, In the sense that they dominate the food scene in the grocery store, um, swoop in and try to replace that company trying to do the right thing with with even sort of, you know, more seductive versions of their their products.
0: You know, we're going to have Brad Stone talk about Whole Foods in a second. Um, But what is the role of the grocery store in this whole process of showing us foods? And can they do uh, more of the right thing?
1: Yeah, I think so. The typical grocery store, you know, has a situation where 90% of the store is is, is the part where if you're meaning to sort of eat, eat by, you know, good health and the health of your family, um, you're going to want to be very careful. And 10% of the store is the produce aisle. Where every nutritionist says we should be spending more time, um, you know, in, 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 with the goal of sort of filling up half our plate with whole vegetables and and fruits, if you will, um, the perimeter of the store, people often say, is kind of the safest place to be. But but that center of the store is yeah. is typically the cash cow for um, supermarket owners who who by and large have a very thin margin of, of sales. And so they're looking to sell those things that sell the fastest and the biggest, right? Um, that said, one of, the, one of the most powerful opportunities in kind of changing the situation and helping people change how they value food has been the big chains, you know, the Walmarts um, who have come into food in a really big way. Because if you can get them, to change their attitudes about their formulations and their, and their marketing of foods, then the rest of the industry sort of may follow, may follow suit. It hasn't exactly worked that way because the other phenomena we have today is this new chain coming from Europe called Aldi's, which is actually even undercutting Walmarts. And going back to what I said about how we love cheap food, I mean, in the parking lot of Aldi's, you will find luxury imported cars because everybody loves a bargain on food, even if they think they're shopping for health.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. I was on mute. Um, the question I, I was asking was, um, why, why do you blame the food companies uh, instead of the consumer who so desires the salt, sugar, and fat? Why isn't it my fault?
1: Yeah, so, so one of the hallmarks of addiction is kind of the loss of control. Now, look, you have to remember that for decades, the tobacco industry vehemently denied that smoking was addictive. And they were winning lawsuit after lawsuit of people who were victimized by smoking, got sick, got cancer, what have you. Um, and then, ironically, in the year 2000, they turned around and conceded that, oops, by the way, you, you, well, oops, you've you oops, got it, right? Smoking is addictive. But the really key thing, and then they started losing um, losses because juries – you know, here you know, before that we're saying, okay, but there's personal responsibility here, right? People have a choice. But the problem is with addictive substances is that they're able to hit the brain so fast and so hard that the thinking part of the brain where executive function lives, where free will lives, um, where our ability to kind of make decisions about, is this like really a smart thing to be doing lives? And that gets put to sleep. And these food products I write about are engineered exquisitely in a way that excites the brain and destroys free will. So I would argue that, you know, you look at somebody who's obese, that is not, their fault. That is not a matter of low executive function on their part or a lack of willpower. That is about them succumbing to products that are designed in a way that overwhelms their ability to sort of ration through their their actions and and eating habits.
0: I want to talk about portion control for a second. Um, Very often we now have all sorts of choices with quantity. They've got little packages, normal size package and then the gigantic packages and ironically it's when you go to walmart for example when they offer you just just an enormous scale at relatively inexpensive prices um you were mentioning before that walmart has the potential i think to do the right thing um but do you think by the size of the packaging that they have there that in by design they're doing the wrong thing
1: Yeah, you know, Coca-Cola and McDonald's kind of pioneered the supersize me phenomena, Mm -hmm. right, where you could buy, you know, twice as much product for hardly any more money. And that got people excited. I write about people in the book who just like said, like, wow, that is a great deal. Of course, I would do that. Um, And that spread throughout the, the grocery business, throughout the restaurant business, where we became attracted to and expecting big portions, right? I mean, think about the last expensive meal you had in a restaurant where you're looking at how much food you got and going like, wow, is that, you know, going to be so much great to have to little more. And, and, and um, I'm still
0: hungry. And, and that,
1: and that plays out kind of in the fast grocery, fast, um, fast food world too. As a, as a corollary to that too, I write about one of the startling things for me was discovering that, none other than the processed food industry as obesity began to rise in the 1980s turned around and bought the dieting industry up um things like weight watchers atkins south beach diet became owned by processed food giants um and not only that but they moved around the grocery store creating diet versions of their mainline products so you'd be standing in the freezer aisle and there'd be hot pockets and then lean pockets with not a whole lot of difference between the two, but this is sort of a general, you know, you know, strategy of the industry to kind of shift responsibility back to us and say to us, "Well, if you're losing control on eating our hot pockets here, maybe you can try the lean pockets of this week."
0: And one of the aspects that's also similar to tobacco is there's disagreement in the science as to what's really going on um, in in nutrition, you have big debates. Um, should we decrease carbs? Should we decrease fats? Should we uh, decrease the amount of salt? Should we avoid sugar altogether? And when we had Dr. Katz on, you know, his views differed from what other nutritionists said, um, but the essence of what Dr. Katz was saying was, um, we know certain things for sure, like you should eat more fruits and vegetables, um, and more plant-based products. That was his thesis. How do you feel about the fact that uh, that the industry, in, in many ways, like the science, doesn't know what the right the right combination of foods uh, to give its clients? Well, as a journalist,
1: right, I'm not a nutritionist. As a journalist, it's incredibly frustrating because you're absolutely right. There's nothing mushier than nutrition science. It's just so hard to do kind of those gold standard. Um, experiments where you sit people down. It wasn't until the year 2019 that this brilliant scientist at the NIH named Kevin Hall actually did the very first causative study looking at um, looking at processed food where he took two groups of people and one of them ate what we call ultra-processed foods for two weeks in the eating lab and the other ate, you know, whole foods that David Katz would probably love. And guess, you know, which group started to gain weight? It was the processed food. But that's the first time we could actually say that there was a causative link um, with processed food and the weight gain that we've been seeing for the last for the last forty years. I can say this that the food industry loves this infighting in the nutrition community because whenever we become kind of more concerned about one of their additives, like sugar or fats or salt, they're really good at adjusting their formulas so that you know, one decade they may be de- decreasing salt and then they increase the salt, the the salt and the fats, um, in order to or just say just de- decreasing sugar and then they increase the salt and the fat, um, because the bottom line is is seduction and allure. They're not gonna they're not gonna diminish the attractiveness of their product, but they're incredibly good at sort of adjusting those formulas and and kind of obfuscating the bigger questions about their products, which is. You know, it's not kind of the nutritionalism, how much salt, sugar, fat, how much of this, how much calcium, but is this like real food. Is this whole food that's going to make me really feel good in the long term and healthy and strong?
0: I want to talk about variety for a second, Um, and I'm going to come about it a couple different ways. The first is, let's just take the Oreo for example. Uh, There's the double stuff. Uh, that's twice as much white filling. Then they've got uh, the, smaller, the smaller Oreo. Um, and there's just all sorts of different ways of which we can get the Oreo. Uh, as to your point that we like variety, um, why – just picking on variety just as, as, as for a second. You, you said that human beings enjoy and appreciate variety. Um, and by its very nature, variety doesn't have to be unhealthy. Why um, should we condemn an industry that provides infinite, it seems, amount of variety to meet the desires, cravings, and love affair that human beings have with variety? So the reason I think we should be concerned about that is, is that they've created this mismatch
1: between our biology and the modern food environment. And so, you know, When we look at variety in the grocery store, it's like the smorgasbord effect. And you've heard about that maybe where you're moving down the Chinese buffet and you've already been through once and you're probably semi full and your plate's full. But you see that new item, you know, to your right and it's irresistible. You'll want to put it on your plate because of that attraction that we have to variety. Um, You know, until 50 years ago, that wasn't a problem for us, but the way that the industry has taken those those essential basic instincts of ours for cheapness and for variety and for calories and on and on, um, they have made overeating an everyday thing. So that's the context that it's trouble. Um, it even used to be a great thing to put on body fat because that enabled our brains to grow, um, us to get through hard times, um, us to have more babies. But in the last 50 years, food has gotten so inexpensive and so ever-present um, that we're putting on way too much body fat by falling so hard for these convenience foods. So it's, it's in the context of they're changing the nature of our food um, in a way that our, our biology hasn't had a chance to to catch up in the future right with with some you know i don't know hundreds of years for our genetics to catch up we might be able to tell the difference between the calories in a bag of fritos you know and and the calories in a, a you know home cooked meal from scratch that's going to give you like the the whole gamut of nutrients that you need to 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 thrive and, and be healthy but but we're not there now by any
0: means well um like I know, Anna, and you know, that Fritos are not the healthy option. Um, we both know that having an apple, for example, might be better for us. Um, and yet sometimes both of us do choose to eat Fritos. Um, we do it um, even when they're side by side. Um, we recognize that the Fritos is salty and tastes great, and you can't just have one. Um, And it's going to be hard to finish the apple. Um, So there is, at at some brain level, we know the answer. At another brain level, we choose uh, the less healthy options sometimes. Um, Why isn't that on us? Why do we have to blame Frito-Lay for that? Well, you and I may understand
1: sort of the nutritional aspect of it. Many people don't know what a calorie is, who know very little about nutrition. They kind of vaguely know that fast food is bad for them um, to eat every day. But look, it's a matter of economics. If you walk in the store wanting to eat healthy by yourself, you will find that a basket of blueberries costs as much as a two-pound, three-cheese, four-meat frozen pizza. That will feed the whole family. And so if you're – Under that financial pressure, which so many people are, which are you going to choose? I think the other powerful uh, thing about these products is that they encourage mindlessness on our part. They encourage us to sort of act without thinking and to eat without thinking. So, yeah, if we stopped and really thought about that bag of, of Fritos before we ate the whole thing in one sitting, we may, in fact, be able to sort of exercise free will, willpower Um, But where they have us is getting us you know, at moments when we don't have to think about it or when cravings, which is a real thing for many people, come on and sort of overpower. I mean, look what happened in the pandemic. I mean, we thought at least we're going to get away from the vending machine, arguably kind of the most treacherous corner of the processed food industry. But many of us turned our kitchen cupboards into vending machines because we went shopping and under the stress and the strain of the pandemic, We began buying things that we hadn't had since we were kids, junky stuff. Sales of those products went up, and they're still up to the delight of the companies, Um, which is another way that these products are, I would argue, are even more problematic than smoking and alcohol and drugs, is the power of the memory. We begin forming memories for these products at a really young age. I mean, we carry those memories with us for life. And we often associate them with great joyful moments. So that's, that's why the soda companies know if they can put a soda in the hands of a kid, we're at the ballpark, with their parents, that kid will forever more associate that soda with joyous moments. So when they grow up and they want some joy and comfort, they immediately kind of think of the, of the, of the, of the soda. So that's the, that's the depth to which these products get into our heads to shape how we value food and our, and our eating habits.
0: Michael, thank you very much. Uh, We're now going to move ahead to Brad Stone. Uh, Brad is the author of The Everything Store and The Upstarts, uh, and he recently just published this last Tuesday a new book called Amazon Unbound, Jeff Bezos, and the Invention of a Global Empire. Brad, fire away.
2: Thank you, Larry, and um, thank you, Michael. Um, I went and bought your book, and I guess I'm going to have to go and throw away my flaming hot Cheetos after that. that Illuminating talk. Um, well, as Larry said, my uh, my book is Amazon Unbound. It tracks uh, the history of Amazon, particularly over the last 10 years and its impact on society and on our economy as it has grown to a 1.6 trillion dollar company and Jeff Bezos has become the wealthiest person in the world. Well, Larry asked me to talk about Alexa, the grocery business, and logistics, which are kind of three avenues of this story. They're sort of different. But when I reflected on this, I thought, you know, the theme here is how Amazon's corporate compass really follows not just Bezos' innovations, but his investment decisions. And with poorly understood repercussions for, as I said, our economy. So let's get started. Alexa, we go back to 2010. uh, Jeff Bezos is reflecting on AWS and the advantages that Amazon has in the cloud. And he sends an email to his executive saying, we should build a $20 computer whose brains are in the cloud that's completely controllable by your voice. Now, he's kind of a famous Star Trek fan, so he's, he's trying to uh, uh, make real this vision of a, of a fully conversational computer, and, and he, I actually have the whiteboard drawing in the book of the first illustration of an Alexa, but that's the innovation, and what follows is really the investments. He handpicks his chief of staff to go run this project, He tells this this executive that he can basically hire any um, AI engineer or voice engineer he wants and acquire companies. Uh, One of the big challenges is getting enough data for this device to make it smart. So they basically finance this kind of secret effort to bring Alexa out into the world. They hide it in apartments and houses, and they hire contractors to kind of run through these houses. Uh, and apartments and speak. They don't even know who they're speaking to or what they're speaking to, but this big data gathering effort results in the introduction of the Echo in uh, late 2014. Now, the contrasting example is the grocery business. Amazon introduces something called Amazon Fresh in 2007, and it just languishes in Seattle for years. And Bezos just believes that this isn't a land grab, but this is more of a green field opportunity online ordering of groceries, and he takes his time. And then what happens in 2015 is this little company called Instacart starts to get funded by Silicon Valley um, and it it starts to have traction. Uh, Google introduces something called Google Express. It launches in Seattle, pays his backyard, he takes notice, and finally he starts to take it seriously. Um, This involves the introduction of a service called Prime Now and the expansion of Amazon Fresh. And it's actually not all that successful. Uh, It's very slow growth, it's unprofitable, Uh, But Bezos sees this now as more of a as more of a a land grab. Uh, And this is the kind of thing that really um, provokes big investment decisions from him. Now, at the time, uh, Whole Foods market is actually kind of languishing. This is a grocer, to uh, to Michael's point, has sort of swam against the tide for many years uh, with an organic selection, uh, not stocking things like big pallets of Coca-Cola and the Flaming Hot Cheetos, and yet uh, it's stagnating on Wall Street. And John Mackey, its CEO, is basically looking for a way to preserve control. Uh, so, of course, Amazon famously buys Whole Foods for $3.7 billion in 2017. Interestingly, it's kind of let him run it autonomously and Amazon is instead introducing its own network of grocery stores called Amazon Fresh. And in a very Amazon-like way, it's trying to differentiate itself not with the product selection as Whole Foods did, but with technology. And so you go into one of these stores and really they're just starting to open them. And it's either got these dash carts where you can put a product into your grocery cart and it automatically uh, tallies it. Or the ghost store technology, where there are cameras in the ceiling and sensors in the shelves, and you pluck something off uh, the shelf, and it automatically charges you. It's a very Amazon-like thing. The, these Type A disruptors believe they can save us some time waiting in, in the cashier line. I don't know about you, but you know, from my particular vantage point, that's that's not really a huge pain point. So we will see how successful Amazon can be in the in the grocery business. The last topic I wanna talk about is logistics. And again, we go back now to 2013, where UPS and FedEx um, are are Amazon's major delivery partners, and they sort of fail to keep up with Amazon's growth. And it's really interesting to consider why. Um, Amazon operates an online store. You can order from it any time of day, any time of night, any day of the week. Uh, Those fulfillment centers are running basically around the clock ups is a union shop it's only operating uh, five days a week back then in 2013 and it's taking off holidays such as uh, thanksgiving and so over the over christmas of 2013 ups basically chokes on on amazon's growth and it's it basically declines to make the investment decisions that will allow it to keep pace with amazon You know, FedEx is the same. Um, You know, these are relatively high margin logistics businesses. Amazon is like a locust, a low margin locust that will simply consume all of its uh, uh, capacity. And so Amazon starts to basically grow its own. Bezos wants a partner that will keep up with it. And this is why today you look out and there are are cars on the street, vans on the street that say Amazon, and trucks on the road and airplanes in the air. Now I'll make one other point before we open up the Q&A. Amazon does not employ those drivers or those pilots. It's a very fissured relationship to take a, 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 a term that David Wheel, uh, a professor at Brandeis University, has popularized. Amazon wants the advantage of a logistics network without any of the pain of uh, employing those workers, of exposing themselves to union possible unionization, and that you know has led to some amount of chaos on the roads as these drivers get into trouble, and also, I think, contributed to income inequality across the board. And with that, Larry, I think I hit my six minutes, and I'll turn it over to you.
0: You're a good boy. Uh, you know, we had David Weil on the show um, about three weeks, three, four weeks ago, uh, talking about the gig economy, oh, wow. and uh, we we didn't really talk about Amazon so much, so let's bring it home. Um, yeah. You're right. Amazon has not hiring the pilots. They're not hiring the drivers um, to drive and they're hiring independent firms or new firms to uh, to take it that last mile. Um, they do it for a number of reasons. Uh, one is for unionization. Another might be that they don't want to get involved uh, when someone runs over a child and get, you know, have to have a 24-7 news right. cycle on that topic. Um, why? in your own mind, why do you think Amazon's doing that? And why should we care? Um, Should we allow people to, you know, choose to focus on certain things? I mean, it's not Amazon has like a million employees already. I mean, what, what, the fact that they don't have 1.2 million, is that really a source of huge pain?
2: (laughs) Right. Well, um, well. First of all, the the news cycles already happen when an Amazon driver, you know, hit, hits a pedestrian. Uh, so they can't escape the bad press, but they do try to escape the legal liability, often not successfully. There have been some settlements, and I write about in, in the book where they've had to pay a family because of a, a driver's mishap. And what they've tr- been trying to do is exert ever more control over over those drivers with. Um, you know, in-car surveillance and different kinds of software that monitor their performance. I mean, I think David makes a pretty good case that this does matter. You know, labor models like Ubers and Amazons are having an impact on in, in income inequality. You know, Amazon tries to kind of polish the halo over its head when it announces things like a $15 an hour wage or 17 dollar an hour wage, but this network of middlemen and independent contractors i mean they're treated like employees but they don't have the protection of labor law labor law uh, they don't fully enjoy um, the, the same wages or the re- rewards of amazon's growth and it's a great illustration of you know inequality uh, among the workforce in a, in a single company and so when we ask why why is the problem of income inequality getting so bad in, in the US with major political repercussions? This is a microcosm. And I think I think Professor Weil uh you know makes a good argument that this this labor model um you know needs to be addressed. And I I last I heard the Biden administration was looking at him to bring him back as a wage regulator. So if if that happens, perhaps he could have an impact.
0: All right, let's go back to uh grocery stores. Um you heard Michael Moss's talk about you know, providing the right foods uh, to consumers. Um, how does Amazon think about that in the context of Whole Foods, the Amazon Fresh, uh, and how they're going to be providing food to the, to the public? Yeah.
2: Amazon's compass uh, points only one way, and that is towards what its customers want. And if the customers want Fritos and Cheetos and Coca-Cola, They're they're not going to take a principled stand on that. I mean, I do think it's remarkable that they have left Whole Foods alone. And I think one of the big things that the activist investors were clamoring for in the battle over Whole Foods was trying to open up those grocery aisles to um, those popular products. And so maybe it was a bit of a principled stand that they let John Mackey run Whole Foods. But the new Amazon grocery stores have all, all the junk that you would expect. Um, The online delivery services like Amazon Fresh have all the junk. And um, when you look at Amazon's, well, you know, it's interesting when you look at their private label products and they're just starting to get into this, they they do tend to go for a kind of higher quality skew of of snack foods and and whatnot. So perhaps there they're taking the high road. But I don't think we can count on Amazon like we probably can't count on Walmart and, and other big grocery stores, too. Uh, they'll, they'll offer the selection, but I don't think they'll try to make a significant impact on their customers' tastes.
0: Uh, variety was another theme of Michael's talk, and no one offers more variety of products across the board than Amazon does. I mean, basically, they'll offer everything. Um, to, your, to your previous book, The Everything Story, it offers everything, and we like that variety. Um, And we want it, and we want it fast. Um, These run core to Amazon's mission statement, uh, provide everything, um, potentially even in a day or two. How do you think about variety as the critical aspect of Amazon's success?
2: I mean, it's right there. Back in 1994, when Jeff Bezos is a a vice president at D.E. Shaw, a, a Wall Street hedge fund, and he's, he's actually researching ideas for D.E. Shaw, and he, and he comes upon the idea um, as he's observing the, the massive growth of the World Wide Web that you can create an everything store, that the selection of a normal store is going to be bounded by shelf space, but uh, online it can be unbounded. Even if you don't have an obscure book, if somebody orders it, you can potentially go get it. And so variety, you know, has always it was, it was sort of the first advantage Amazon had—that endless selection. You know, pr- the price is all always going to be higher because you had to, you know, store it and pack it and ship it. Um, and uh, you know, convenience was always, always going to be worse because customers would have to wait a couple of days. But selection was right there. And one of the stories I tell in the, in this book is how Amazon has pursued selection uh, overseas, and it's opened up the marketplace to overseas sellers. Particularly in China, close to manufacturers, and a wave of low-cost goods have flooded into the marketplace. If you're an Amazon customer, you probably sometimes can recognize that. And the selection has come with a lot of kind of negative aspects, uh, like poor poor quality um, or or uh, sketchy brands that basically don't stand behind the customer promise. So, yes, uh, selection's been key, variety's been key, but it's also brought kind of some
0: unintended consequences. Um, Let's go back to Alexa for a second. So he came up with this idea. He put it together. um, But I haven't heard a lot about the product in the last couple of years. Uh, I imagine that when he designed it, he expected uh, this to continue to grow exponentially in both use and quality, uh, that there might be some third-party designed apps. Why hasn't Alexa exploded as, uh, as a solution to helping people solve problems? I think that's
2: right, Larry. I, I feel like um, it has slowed down a little bit, perhaps with the migration of Bezos' attention to, to other things that are happening in his in his personal life and, um, of course, his responsibilities, his philanthropy, and now he's moving on as CEO. But there, I do think they've encountered, well, two challenges. One, a technical challenge. Um, you know, the idea that he had was a fully conversational computer. The practical concerns his executives had was, Launching this thing with uh, you know some some actual skills that they could advertise, and I think they did that with like music and you know turn on the lights, turn off the lights, um, tell the you know recite the weather, read the news, and it hasn't grown that much. And I think they're hitting some kind of natural barriers on artificial intelligence and conversational computing. And then the second part is, as you mentioned, it hasn't created the kind of ecosystem of apps that you have on your smartphone. And they have tried. But I think there's a sort of fundamental limitation there because because it's frankly, you know, mostly conversational. There are some Alexa devices with skills. It's hard to like see what's available and some on the right skill. It's just not there in front of you. And maybe perhaps we as humans, um, you know, when it comes to our technology, still really rely on um, words on a screen. And so it is slow, but, you know, by any measure, it's Pretty much a success. I mean, they've got over a hundred million devices out there, and more than any other company, they've probably you know are further in terms of networking the home, bringing home appliances and light bulbs and doorbells and you know other other aspects of the home onto onto a computer network and making it easily operated by by the homeowner.
0: I don't remember where in the book, but you mentioned um, Thomas Edison. Oh, you know what? It was in your first quote. At at the beginning of the book, you mentioned that uh, Edison's genius wasn't inventing; he was inventing a system of invention. And we had Ernie Freiberg uh, on the show a couple weeks ago talking about Edison and, and the teamwork involved in the process of invention. But but sort of like the story you're telling today is the vital ingredient of Jeff Bezos' personal. Um, part of the process where he's coming up with the big idea and then throwing resources to solve it. How, how important is he to, uh, to the system or because in some ways I imagine these systems are enormous. Like when you discuss logistics, for example, you know, he hired an excellent team and followed some big ideas, but he wasn't in there day to day managing that process. Why, Why do you think he's so critical to the success of, of the institution itself?
2: I mean, he, he's certainly, yeah, he's critical to a certain kind of success. When you when you peel back the layers of the big technology innovations like AWS and the Kindle and Alexa, he is there. But I think you're right in that he has while he has sponsored the big changes like logistics and groceries, um, the marketplace and AWS, you know, there have been other leaders there. Um, You know and so when i talk in the book about a system of invention i'm talking about the the customs the leadership principles um the you know the rituals like the six page documents that some people probably know about but they can read more about my book or you can even google amazon's leadership principles and that system of invention has actually been very successful outside of amazon so bezos instituted it at the washington post they, write, they present documents to him. He reads them. He asks the executives to bring him new things. And so, I, I mean, I do think that he has set up a kind of enduring franchise that will continue to succeed while he st- when he steps away for good. It might be this fall, but I suspect he'll, he'll linger for a bit. Um, but you're right. In terms of like that, that disruptive new technological idea, the insight that he had with Alexa, the $20 computer brains in the cloud operated by voice, you know that Amazon might might miss that and when i look at Andy Jassy his successor or other members of the amazon leadership team there there's no one like that in fact there are now very few technologists um
0: and so that that could be a challenge for amazon going forward um one of the most incredible things about amazon is their willingness um to take them to start another division that will attack one of their core businesses. Um, Take the Amazon marketplace and the willingness for, or create an environment for their competitors to compete on the same products that they sell on their own store. Um, Very few companies I've ever heard of were willing to do such a thing. Um, How, why does, is it Bezos? Is it the institution as a whole that says, you know what, um, let's attack what we're doing right now and just see what happens. How do you view that, for example, as the Amazon marketplace, uh, as the willingness to take that, that whole industry on?
2: Yeah, you, you, you're right. It's sort of a willingness to endure the corporate discomfort that comes from setting uh, competing teams against each other inside. And, Amazon history is replete with them. Uh, Bezos selected a, an executive to start the Kindle business back in 2005, I think, and he, he instructed the guy, I want you to proceed as if your job is to put everyone selling physical books out of business. And then you fa- you fast forward. I talked about the grocery stores, and Amazon is introducing these Amazon Fresh grocery stores in direct competition with Whole Foods. Sometimes in the in the same neighborhood. So you know the reason they do that is because you know they they wanna they wanna be everywhere. They wanna provide what their customers want. They kind of view business expansion as you know the active experimentation, trying a lot of different things, finding what works, and then sort of doubling down madly on it. And look, they are able to do that by virtue of their enormous resources. At first, for the first you know 20 years, it was the relationship with investors and how Wall Street allowed Amazon to lose a lot of money. Those days are gone. The company is very profitable. And now it's just financing all of these experiments, expanding in all of these directions, figuring out what works and then doubling down on it. And that's a reason why, you know, there are lots of reasons to criticize Amazon, to regulate it. I think I get into those in the book. But when you look at the years ahead, this company is like a boulder running downhill. And, um, you know, I I think it's hard to look at the competitive environment and judge who might slow this company down or even stop it.
0: Our next speaker is Dietrich Volrath is going to talk about the lack of productivity in the service sector. Um, Amazon is is in a lot of service sectors, like they're in the business of retail, they're in the grocery store business. how do you think about opportunities for um improvements in productivity in the areas that it touches? Well, Larry, let's see. Um, let's just pick one. Um, yeah, yeah, give me an example. So um you know, getting goods to people, right. Well,
2: it's, you know, last last week, Amazon uh, issued or announced it was going to issue $18 billion in bonds over, I think, the next 40 years. And, you know, they borrow money like this when it's cheap. And the, and the reason they do it, and they don't have to do it, is to build more Amazon, to build fulfillment centers closer to customers, you know, to hire more of these middlemen uh, transportation companies, probably to build more data centers. And, and what it means is, you know, go back to the boulder analogy, um, you know, it's, they're, they're, they're getting closer to customers they are going to deliver faster. You know, they tried to make prime a one day proposition a year and a half ago, and then kind of suspended, uh, that during the pandemic. But, you know, I think, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the economics of the business support this kind of expansion. I think they're going to be those, deliveries are going to be ever quicker. And, and what that means is, you know, when we talked about convenience selection and, and prices, convenience being one of the variables that sort of always lagged, Amazon has, is solving that. And pretty soon, you know, these deliveries uh, are going to be, uh, you know, get, ordering something, getting it on Amazon is going to be just as convenient as going to the store. And depending on how you view that company, uh, it's, that's a, either a, an enormously appealing proposition or a very dangerous one.
0: All right, thank you, Brad. We're gonna move on to our next speaker, who is Dietrich Volrath at the University of Houston, where he's professor of economics. Uh, He's gonna be discussing his new book called Fully Grown, Why a Stagnant Economy is a Sign of Success, and he'll be chatting about the current slowdown and why it is actually a signal of doing well. Go ahead, Dietrich.
3: All right, uh, Larry, thanks for having me. Um, So, starting around the turn of the century, the U.S. economy, Experienced a noticeable, noticeable growth slowdown. Uh, from 1950 to 2000, GDP per capita grew at about two and one quarter percent per year. Since 2000, that growth, race, gro- growth rate has averaged about 1% per year, or under half. There's a lot of possible culprits, and everybody's kind of got their favorite uh, for why this might have happened. There's too much regulation, or maybe too little, uh, uh, failure of innovation, or we're innovating in, in trivial things. Maybe firms are too concentrated, uh, maybe income is, taxes are too high or they're too low, or we're trading with China or Mexico, or maybe we're not trading enough. There's there's a host of of kind of favorite bugaboos we could all throw out there. But when you kind of dig into the data and, and try and link this up, it turns out that none of those things are anywhere close to large enough in their effects to have actually caused that much of a slowdown in economic growth. What I do go through in the book is this kind of detailed accounting and come up with the two kind of boring and simple answers for why growth slowed down. And that's basically that we're old and we have a lot of stuff. Um, So we're not all old. Obviously, some of us are like me. Uh, And the real story here is actually about really the baby boom generation coming into and leaving uh, the economy So in the middle of the 20th century, uh, baby boomers hit the labor force. Uh, They increased the ratio of workers to population, so that had a direct effect on on growth. They also were the first generation with widespread college attendance. Uh, And as they aged, they were getting more on-the-job experience, which meant human capital and skills and everything were increasing uh, much more rapidly than normal. And on top of that, uh, this kind of extension of women's rights to participate in the labor force more fully, not perfectly, but more fully, added another wave of workers kind of on top of the general, the, the general wave of, of, of baby boomers into the workforce. And again, we had this, this extra boost of kind of human capital, and that meant faster economic growth, right? But around the year 2000, all this starts to stall out. Baby boomers hit their 50s and 60s. They aren't getting more education. Uh, the experience that you earn on the job, that's kind of maxing out at that rate. Uh, women's participation rates in the workforce had leveled off at similar to men's. Um, their pay hadn't, but, but their participation had. Uh, and then most important, as the 21st century starts, uh, that generation is starting to leap. The workforce, And now kind of these effects, the, the, the wave of labor that pushed into the work, uh, into the economy and helped raise the growth rate was ebbing away from the economy and pulling down the growth rate. And there's this huge impact on just the core rate of economic growth. Mainly because the boomers themselves took advantage of a big change in their lifetime, the pill and other contraceptive techniques, but mainly the pill. And they were married late, and they didn't have a whole lot of kids. So their kids, like me, um, there aren't many of us. And so there isn't this following generation um, of people entering the workforce to replace the boomers at at a rate sufficient to keep the economic growth rate up. Uh, Our experience, kind of my generation and the following generation's experience and and entries into the labor force just can't offset the drag that the baby boomers leaving uh, is exerting. The thing is, is that that wave of growth in the 20th century and now the slowdown in growth and response because of the baby boomers' entry and exit, that was because of a string of successes. They, they had advantages of higher incomes and a prosperous economy. They took advantage of that along with uh, new uh, types of contraception and, and women's rights to do what? Well, they married late and they had small families. They unintentionally uh, ended up creating a situation that would lead to slow economic growth decades later uh, through the actions that they took forming their families. Now, if boomers getting old explains a lot of the slowdown, the other part of it is that at the same time, we were getting rich. We had a lot of stuff. We have more goods. We bought more goods every year, and it's cheap. And as a proportion of our income, that meant that the more goods we were buying was an even smaller and smaller share of the economy. The thing is, is that that shift out of spending on goods and things, tangible stuff, and into services meant that productivity growth slowed down. Uh, and we kind of touched on that already with, with, with the discussion with Brad, but services tend to have slow productivity growth because services, labor is the product in many ways, and it's hard to get rid of it. Uh, doctor's visit is the classic example. If you're going to go see the doctor, you want to see the doctor. It's hard to, hard to pull back on the labor commitment, uh, say, in healthcare. So just like the demographic shift, that shift into services is really a sign of success. It's, it's a sign of how successful we are at producing the, the base material goods that we need to thrive. We took advantage of that to spend less on those basic material goods and moved into buying things that tend to not have really rapid productivity growth. And that just dragged down growth overall in the economy. So relative to those two big things, the the aging and the shift into services, the all the little pieces involved the taxation and regulation and concentration and inequality and in trade just don't add up anywhere close to enough to explain the slowdown by themselves. Now, the thing is, is it doesn't mean that like, hey, everything's okay, the economy's perfect. We shouldn't be complacent. The, the story of this is that we've, we've kind of moved into this, this world in which we have the opportunity to in some sense turn down the knob on how much focus we put on the growth rate and maybe turn up the knobs on how much we focus on other aspects of the economy and society. We've kind of reached a high, living, high enough living standard on average at least to, to worry about those things rather than the growth rate itself. It was in that sense, you know, kind of this slow growth was, was an unintended consequence of these big successes. And now we have, to have a chance to take advantage of it. And I think that'll do it just about in six minutes. Well done. Um,
0: first question is on services. So um, but when William Baumol was near the end of his life, um, I took him to lunch in, I think, 2016 with two of my buddies. Um, and I, I found the whole Baumol's disease discussion um, very important as uh, critical to understanding long-term productivity growth, as we discussed. And what he was worried about was that we were shifting our basket of in, of consumer items into services where, as exactly you said, we just it's tough to become more productive. And he highlighted two things, healthcare and education. Mm-hmm. So let me start with education. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we had Sveig Galio at Georgia Tech, and he mentioned that uh, Georgia Tech is now offering an online master's degree, one-year degree in computer science uh, for $7,000. Um, and he hopes to offer it at a lower price next year. Um, do you think we're on the cusp of potentially improving these service sectors' productivity, which has been going, un, you know, hasn't been growing very much? Um, but maybe now we should a- attack it uh, and bring down the price of education. It's just one example of the service sector. Uh, can we use technology to do that? Yeah, I think
3: this is kind of the million-dollar question, right? And and so the I think there's kind of two ways that I've thought about this. And so, uh, so one is just kind of looking backwards. You look at it and you, you say, wow, I mean, if you're going to really rapidly improve productivity in, in a service like education or something like that, then you're bucking a historical trend that is pretty deep set. It's, it's hard to find any you know, examples of sustained super high productivity growth in services. It exists. It just doesn't. It's not very high. And so that part kind of makes you wary, like, uh, we can offer an online degree, and you can think of, you know, oh, and I can add more people, and it scales, and I think over the last year, we've seen, with a, you know, I know I've offered an online class, and there's a lot of ways of, of maybe taking advantage of that. But again, how much does it scale? At the same time, I think there is, to what you were saying, like, is it time we attack this? Uh, I think one reason to be optimistic about maybe bringing service uh, productivity growth up is that maybe what's what's happened is that we just have never actually really thought hard about it and oddly um, it maybe kind of to brad's mm-hmm. point you know amazon maybe is more the leading edge of thinking about how to improve this service productivity for a lot of pieces of the economy than maybe we even give them credit for and and so we've spent so much time maybe in our past focused on increasing productivity for material goods that only now have we, are we, can we really turn our brain power to improving it in services. So I think there is some reason to be optimistic, but, but you are fighting a pretty big historical drag.
0: I mean, just spending one more second, going back to Amazon for a second. I think if we had this conversation um, 20 years ago, and said, you know, what kind of productivity could we see in retail? Um, I mean, how much better can we be at, you know, pushing around, you know, walking up and down the aisles and grabbing stuff off shelves and then just see what Amazon has done uh, and the online revolution that continues with it? It's it's just unbelievable. I I mean, how, why isn't that an example of something
3: we can do to the other elements of the service economy? Yeah, and I think that's, and I think that's like you said. I think that's the right optimistic attitude maybe to take. Um, we're you know we're kind of famously terrible at predicting how good we can get at stuff, right? Like all these famous examples of I, I think it was the IBM exec, right? I think there's a worldwide market for maybe ten computers that kind of thing. Yeah, I think it was uh, digital equipment, afforded. but yeah, yeah, uh, digital equipment, right? So so we are kind of terrible at this as a as a society maybe, um, and. And I think this I think Amazon is one of those examples where you're like, well, actually, there are, wow, look at that. There are ways that maybe this can be faster and better. And uh, I, I have a couple of good friends who are, are general practitioners and started doing a lot more telemedicine over the last year for obvious reasons. And and a number of them are like, well, I'm not going, you know, we're going to keep that right. We uh, I think sometimes this this kind of the events of the last year have maybe accelerated thinking about how to, how to push some of those productivity boundaries in ways that we would have been hesitant to before. Uh, I'm not going to say that (laughs) COVID ripping through the world was a good thing, but sometimes maybe it takes a big shock like that to make us think of what could be the next big change.
0: The other, the other example you have in the book was um, the classic example of the quartet um, playing, you know, some piece of Mozart, and you said that, um, you know, when we look back 30 years from now, um, they'll be playing the, that same quartet and play the same piece, but probably no better. What, what I think is unfair about that is we've now digitally have almost, you know, millions of different scores uh, of music that we can listen to in a variety of ways whenever we want uh, in repetition. You know, for me, music is an example of something where we've done something quite extraordinary uh, and become even much more productive about it. How, how do you think about music as both a, a failure and a success in productivity?
3: Yeah. And I think that's a good example. Right. So that is, that is the, the classic William Baumill example, right. From one of his early papers is uh, is you can't get, you know, a, a string quartet can't get any more productive. <laughs> they can't play the piece faster. People will get annoyed. And in some sense, they can't use it, do, any, do it with any fewer than four people, right? So there's no way to increase labor productivity. So music, I think, is, is always a good example in this discussion because it becomes a question of, well, what have we, what have we done here? We've, in some sense, the digital nature, your recordings in general, even before the digital. Uh, kind of revolution on this, took music and made it a good, made it a product, right? And we can get, we're really good at making stuff, right? So we can make uh, LPs and CDs and eight tracks. Like we figured out how to make those super cheap and put a player in everybody's house. So we're able to do that. And that absolutely, you know, got music out to more people. And then, But it's a question, is, is, that, a, is, that, a, is that a goods industry or is that a service industry? The the distinction may be in in seeing a string quartet. They can't get any more productive. Like if you want to go see them live, and some people have huge demand for that particular live performance, you can't really get much more productive than with that, but you can turn it into a good. And so maybe maybe the way to conceive of how do we get to a higher productivity world is how do we take some services and turn them into goods? How do we take something like education and turn it into a recording that is is that we we can put into our machine that we're really good at at churning things out cheaply, uh, and maybe we're starting to see that maybe with some uh, some online education things that that become more like a recording or a CD and less like an in-class experience.
0: Let's talk healthcare for a second. Um, my father was a cardiologist, and he told me that when he graduated uh, medical school and was joining a residency that cardiology, all they could do is say you had a heart attack and you should have bed rest. Um, And that today, because of the pharmaceutical industry, um, if a doctor is unable to manage your uh, heart disease, it's malpractice. Um, The rate of change in medicine, even from this COVID experience, has been quite remarkable. We were told that it would be impossible within a year to have a working vaccine. And today, in a marketplace, we probably have half a dozen. Um, how do you think about uh, the improvement of the combination of pharma- the pharmaceutical industry, the biotech industry, working in conjunction with medical professionals to improve the quality of the healthcare product in a way where we can start to see some of the productivity numbers we've seen in agriculture uh, to a
3: lifespan? Well, I mean, I think in that sense, we... And this is where you have to think about how you kind of define the industry we're talking about. In in one sense, we have seen those kind of productivity increases in healthcare. To your point, uh, there's essentially generic, super cheap versions of drug, life saving drugs that exist now that 20, 30 years ago, people would have died from these d- diseases, right? But we've c- that goods producing aspect of healthcare, and I think the vaccines are part of that, right? Like, what is the the vaccine the science itself was amazing. And then what have we seen over the last few months is been it's an industrial manufacturing success, right? Like is able to spit out millions of these, uh, Moderna is able to mm-hmm. spit out millions of these. And that kind of, manuf- when we can turn something into a product, a physical product, we're really, really good at making that stuff. But the part of healthcare that, you know, it remains expensive to access is what? It's the time and attention of the specialist who, in the end, might just be writing you a prescription for the thing that's going to save your life, but you still need that guy's time and attention in order to get to the point where you understand that that's the right prescription. Uh, And that may be that hang-up, and it may be the point where we have to start thinking about mentally breaking these kinds of concepts of an industry down, uh, just breaking them down, right? And not thinking of healthcare as this big umbrella about, like, all the things involved in how I get healthy. There's the the material side of healthcare. Oh, I got a cheaper MRI machine. I got cheaper drugs. They, they produced pretty easily. And then the service side of it, which is the appointments and the attention from, from your, your healthcare provider, which in Bommel's world are, are really hard to go, you know, do productivity increases on.
0: Michael Moss was telling us earlier about, uh, innovation in agriculture and food. Um, Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the great stories over the last century and a half is the absolute productivity of the farm. Um, very few people work in agriculture now in the United States, and yet we're, if anything, to Michael's point, we're overfed uh, to the point of becoming obese. Um, how do you think about all this productivity in goods production resulting in excess? Um, you know, another example might be opioids. Um, we had pain. And now we've got too much painkillers. How should we think about becoming too productive and then the repercussions thereof?
3: No, I think that's a great point. I was thinking something similar while he he was speaking, right? Like, and it is, right? Like from a historical perspective, the ability to, on average at least, provide everybody with more than enough food is mind-bogglingly crazy, right? Like this is historically wacko, but have we tipped over? Um, isn't in fact bad. And, and, and in some sense, this, I think that the material wealth and the material prosperity we have, I think to the last point I was making was maybe should be, what it should be doing is putting us in mind of, well, now what do we talk about rather than how do we get more stuff, right? For most of history, getting more stuff out to people was good, more food, better shelter, energy, uh close, you know all the material goods just getting more of them out to more people was always an un, un, uninhibited good and we've reached the point perhaps where now it's not and and i think that it tells us that we should maybe reconceive of the importance of thinking about economic growth as a measure of any kind of success uh if we look at it so let's we, we have this revelation my, my wife's a nutritionist and a dietitian and so we have this discussion all the time about kind of like oh this, the kind of the terrible state of the the U.S. Uh, kind of food consumption basket. And if we have a revelation tomorrow where my wife gets to convince everybody about what they should be eating and it's more vegetables and fruits, what's going to happen? Most likely uh, the agriculture, the food production industry in the U.S. shrinks. Um, and the economy as a whole kind of, you know, hold everything constant. The economy as a whole might not grow or it might get smaller. And that might be good, right? So there may be this, we may be in this weird kind of transition point where, in fact, flat economic growth, slightly negative economic growth might represent actually us improving on things. I think the environmental side of stuff is the other obvious point. What if we stop producing, you know, what if kind of the oil industry shuts down tomorrow uh, and the economy gets smaller, but we have you know, abundant solar energy, we may have a smaller GDP, but kind of wouldn't we be better off? So it's, but we're at this point where our decision points about uh, how this stuff works are changing, right? Our, it no longer is maybe economic growth lined up with with kind of our well-being as much as it used to be.
0: A question about your, uh, your demographic analysis. And I think your point was, is that we, there was too many factors going around uh number of workers, relative ages, et cetera, so what if we just analyzed um thirty year old males and analyzed the productivity of the thirty year old male over the last century? How would those numbers differ from the established productivity numbers that we normally look at
3: yeah that's a good question, right like kind of Right, like let's not muck everything up with the demographics. So what you'd see is you'd see less of a, less of a apparent slowdown, right? It wouldn't be nearly as dramatic. Um, you'd probably see some drift downward in productivity growth for the, because the service, the service sector manufacturing thing would still be there. And some of the other factors would still be floating around. But if you just ripped the demographics out, it would be a much less noticeable decline in the growth rate. And that's not because, and, and that's for two parts. One, growth wouldn't have been nearly as fast in the 20th century, and it wouldn't have been nearly as slow in the 21st. They would kind of, wouldn't have kind of evened out. So kind of from a very aggregate perspective, the demographics have this huge effect. And to your point, they kind of end up making it look like, wow, well, we've had this, this revolutionary, awful drop in, in, in GDP growth. When most of that's demographics, and, and, and your average 30-year-old has been giving getting kind of as more a little more productive every year for roughly the same rate over a long, long time.
0: So if you were just going to put a number on it, you started your conversation by saying we fell from two and a quarter to one percent. Uh, would you have just guessed it would have been a 50 basis point drop in productivity? Yeah. Of the I, right. Of
3: Back of my, I'd have to sketch it out, but like kind of off the top of my head, I I bet you, you might say something like the growth rate from 1950 all the way up till now would have bounced between say one and a half and 1.75% without taking out kind of the big baby boom shift and and the changes in demographics. It would have just kind of smoothed that all out. Um, So we wouldn't be that far off in terms of levels from where we are today. We would have gotten there more steadily, so to speak.
0: Got it. Okay. Uh, we're going to go on to our next speaker, Vivek Ramaswamy, who is the founder of a biotech company called Royvin Sciences. He's got a new book coming out in the fall entitled um, Woke Inc. Inside Corporate America's Social Justice Scam. Uh, Vivek will be speaking on a bunch of different topics today, including ESG. Go ahead, Vivek.
4: Yeah, sure. Thanks. Uh, thanks, Larry. Uh, can you hear me pretty well? Good. Yeah. So, so the upcoming book, as you mentioned, Woke Inc., is, is in part a critique of stakeholder capitalism. It's in part a critique of the so-called woke movement that's being advanced by corporations and, and other elite institutions today. And in the book, as you mentioned, I'm not a journalist uh, that's done a lot of research to report on my findings, although I did do some to support the book, but I'm writing mostly from my firsthand experiences of having gone to elite universities, worked in hedge funds for seven years, and then subsequently founding a number of companies, including a a large biotech company that that you mentioned, which I led as CEO for seven years before I stepped down this January. So, So I'll start with a bit of a critique on stakeholder capitalism, and then I'll close with a discussion about the merger between stakeholder capitalism and the woke movement. So stakeholder capitalism first refers to the basic idea that companies shouldn't just serve their shareholders, but should also serve other societal interests along the way. And Today, technology companies, Wall Street, big business broadly has loudly endorsed the idea. Milton Friedman 50 years ago didn't like it because he thought it might lead companies to be less efficient. And while I have to admit I share his concern to some extent, there's even a bigger problem that I'm personally worried about, which is that I think that stakeholder capitalism actually represents a threat to the integrity of American democracy itself. And the idea is really pretty simple the way I look at it, at least in the first instance. In order for companies to be able to pursue these societal interests in addition to their shareholder interests, companies and their investors have to first define what those other societal interests ought to be. And that isn't a business judgment. It's a moral judgment. And speaking not personally as a CEO, but just as an ordinary American, I don't want our capitalist elites to actually play a larger role than they already do in determining our society's core values, where I think those questions ought to actually be answered by our citizenry at large through our democratic process publicly through open debate, privately at the ballot box without the intervention of market power to settle questions in the marketplace of ideas. And and I don't necessarily consider that a Republican idea or Democratic idea. I do consider it a deeply American idea. That being said, I do find it pretty puzzling that progressives seem to be the ones today who love the idea of stakeholder capitalism, because many progressives who love stakeholder capitalism absolutely abhor Citizens United, a famous case from about a decade ago, because it permitted corporations to influence elections and democracy. I personally view stakeholder capitalism as Citizens United on steroids because it actually demands these CEOs use their corporate resources to implement the social goals that they in particular want to push. And even we talked about Amazon earlier, I, I chuckle as I watch Jeff Bezos going, uh, going woke and joining the stakeholder capitalism movement, which should tell you a little bit about something when someone like a Jeff Bezos takes over uh, and adopts a new value, it should cause you to question what the, what the real goals are in adopting those values at all. I come from the pharma industry. I think that rejecting stakeholder capitalism doesn't have to mean putting profits ahead of patients, but it does mean putting patients first, including ahead of other social causes. To make the rubber hit the road, that means we don't care about the race or gender of the scientist who discovers a cure one day to COVID-19 or whether the manufacturing and distribution process that delivers the vaccine most quickly to patients is carbon neutral. Those are the kinds of choices that we need to make. It's not just strictly a question of putting profits ahead of patients, but the question of whether you put your essential corporate purpose ahead of ancillary social causes. And I personally think that actually at the heart of this debate, from some of my own personal experiences, are the issues of conflicts of interest. And in the real world, most conflicts aren't actually financial. So if you take an example, if I'm a public company CEO and I decide to use the corporate piggy bank to make a big donation to, say, my high school or the temple where I worship in Ohio... That should raise a pretty big red flag since my high school or my temple have nothing to do with my business. But personally, I don't think it's any different if a CEO uses the corporate piggy bank to make a donation to say Black Lives Matter. And, and many CEOs did exactly that last year and they were applauded for it. But in both cases, either in the case of the high school or in the case of BLM, the CEO derives some kind of personal benefit from using the company's piggy bank to make the donation. and I personally consider that to be a conflict of interest. And I find it curious that the conflict of interest hawks seem blithely unconcerned or at least silent about this class of reputational conflicts of interest. Now, it's also curious that a lot of big businesses are now lobbying the government itself to mandate so-called ESG-related disclosures for public companies. And again, I'm a skeptic. I, I ask lawmakers when I've testified in front of Congress and in front of the Senate earlier this year on these topics to ask themselves what those business leaders actually hope to achieve for themselves. We talked about food earlier, take a soft drink manufacturer, advocating for voting rights, that's pretty easy in a given state. But reckoning with the nationwide impact of soda consumption on human health, that's actually a lot harder. And that's just a general rule of thumb for me is when choosing between accepting constraints on matters that relate to the core of your business versus matters that don't, self-interested CEOs generally choose the latter. And that's exactly the smokescreen that stakeholder capitalism and, and its related cousin in the woke movement have created over the last few years. So I have other issues too. I talk about them in the book. I think stakeholder capitalism tends to favor incumbents over startups. That's why the Business Roundtable and the Davos crowd tends to favor it rather than small business owners. I also personally think that it's possible that we're in the early stages of an ESG-linked asset bubble, akin to the pre-2008 housing bubble, like both of them being driven by a social agenda that was at least in part disconnected from economic fundamentals. But to me, those are really secondary issues, and the bigger issue is the threat to American democracy itself, because when we demand that corporations make moral judgments and exercise political power, I personally think that democracy loses twice, once through integrity in the lawmaking process and also in our political and public debate as citizens through corporate overreach, influencing that by using market power to substitute open debate as the way we settle political questions. But we also lose social solidarity as a people when even the private sector becomes politicized. And I think that personally, in a divided polity like ours, we depend on certain spaces that remain apolitical maybe the baseball stadiums in which we all gather, irrespective of whether we're black or white or Democrat or Republican, or the common projects that we pursue. Maybe it's building Alexa or maybe it's building something else that brings us together towards a common purpose that isn't political in nature. I actually think contemporary American democracy and American democracy for most of our history has depended on the existence of those apolitical sanctuaries to bring together an otherwise divided group of people. And instead what we see today is that this new, infection of stakeholder capitalism is poisoning democracy on the one hand partisan politics is now poisoning capitalism in the reverse direction and in the end we're left with neither democracy nor capitalism and so speaking as more as an american not as a ceo i don't want to live in a corporatocracy i don't want to live in a one dollar one vote system i don't want to live in a modern version of old world europe where a small group of wealthy elites decide behind closed doors what's good for the rest of society I want to live in a democracy where everyone's voice and everyone's vote is weighted equally and i think that's actually the heart of what's wrong with stakeholder capitalism in a way that the milton friedman-esque critiques from 50 years ago might have actually missed and, and i know we're getting pretty close to time so i'll just i'll just plant a seed and maybe we can pick it up in the Q and A. is that that's that's on stakeholder capitalism in principle i also take aim at the social component of the esg movement in particular which has merged with the modern so-called woke or critical race theory-based conception of individual identity that has taken an already divisive philosophy of concentrating power to make judgments in the hands of a small group of business elites, but merging that with a debate about the essence of what it means to be an individual, and agent in the world. I know that's something that our next speaker may be talking about as well, has created a particularly dangerous brand of woke capitalism that proved convenient for Wall Street, where he got to put, merge a bunch of uh, woke millennials getting together with a bunch of big banks and together were- birthing woke capitalism allowing them to put Occupy Wall Street up for adoption starting 10 years ago, that might have been where this began. But over the course of the last 10 years, it's actually become unstoppable in a way that's supplanted our solidarity as a people even further. So I'll pause there, Larry. I'm happy to have a discussion.
0: Cool. Um, You mentioned Amazon in your conversation. um, And Amazon had this um, HQ2 movement where they were going to put their next headquarters. Uh, they went out and shopped it and they decided upon New York city where they were attacked by AOC for uh, getting those uh, tax benefits. Um, Amazon seemed a little bit in shock and, and taken aback by that. How do we think about the relationship um, for corporate America as it bids up uh it's just that of, of where it should locate its, its offices. I know it's not directly on point, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to bring it back in a second.
4: No, I think, I think it is on point in, in a different sense, Larry. I think that this is just a new form of crony capitalism, where crony capitalism 1.0 back in the pre-2008 era was, hey, if you're Goldman Sachs, place your alumnus in the seat of U.S. Treasury Secretary, and let's hope that you favor your alumnus when it comes time to deciding who to hand out bailouts to and who not to. And, you know, that was a trick that worked pretty well. It's pretty simple in terms of how that game is played, or corporate contributions to electoral campaigns to expect favors in return. But now, I think that there's, especially with the new progressive left, that kind of currency doesn't necessarily work to achieve the same types of results that it once would have, which is why they're tithing in a new currency. They're tithing in the woke currency through performative social gesturing, which is a different way of exerting influence where direct green pieces of paper wouldn't do it. We're now able to do it through through the signaling of virtue and ideological alignment. And I think we're seeing it. I think Amazon's a great example where I think the uh, checks that they're writing to Black Lives Matter, if you turn on your Amazon streaming services, the selection of movies that you see following George Floyd's death, et cetera, I don't think this is a change of heart for Jeff Bezos relative to where he was 30 years ago. I don't think it's any different when they announced. I kind of laughed when they announced their $15. Minimum wage. When you know it might, might have announced at a time where their competitors were actually coming under fire under profitability threats. This is actually just another way of competing. But effectively, when they weren't, when they ultimately face a political threat from a new left that may not be prone to lobbying in the same terms, the ability to signal potential solidarity around the the certain social agendas and causes that the far left cares about is a new way of actually winning favor in a way that it at least agrees. To let the far left look the other way when it comes to leaving corporate power intact and i think that's happening every day in silicon valley today where the implicit grand bargain with the left today is the left was historically very skeptical of corporate power especially the concentration of corporate power in potentially monopoly or oligopoly oligopolistic hands and instead what we're seeing right now is a version of especially with a particular party in power in the united states an implicit grand bargain to say that hey look we're going to censor content that you don't like on the internet in return, we're going to agree to have you look the other way when it comes to leaving the status quo intact. And I think it's actually working out through an unspoken grand bargain, but sort of a repeat player game. It's actually settled at a new equilibrium that's working at least as well as the old equilibrium from direct lobbying through the use of dollars through the front door. And you know, I think Amazon is among those that understands this game better than most.
0: One more second on Amazon. So uh, Jeff Bezos acquired the Washington Post. Uh, This is the largest newspaper in our political capital, and it took direct aim at at President Trump. Um, Why do you think – and Jeff Bezos went to great lengths to articulate that this was his personal investment and really nothing to do with Amazon. Um, In previous generations, we were very concerned about the relationship of the major media companies and its power uh, to minimize its role with other corporate activity. Do you think that uh, Amazon has abused it in some way? Uh, or, and, or, and how do you compare that with you know, Facebook or Twitter denying um, Trump access to their sites as well?
4: Yeah, so look, I think that there's two different things going on there. You know, I, I'm, I'm obviously editorializing and offering my perspective here. This isn't a factual account, but it's my opinion, having thought about this and watched this stuff over the last year and, the course, of writing my book, that I have some views here. I, I think that the Amazon example is an interesting one where – I think a lot of what Amazon does qua Amazon is is of the variety of new crony capitalism, modern progressive veneer crony capitalism that I just described a moment ago. I think Jeff Bezos buying the Washington Post, if I may, is, is something else altogether, which is actually the use of one's moral standing where your marginal value of an added dollar goes down pretty tremendously when, you, when you're in the hundreds of billions of dollars of territory of, of dollars that you've amassed over the course of the last number of decades, that you ultimately need to buy yourself relevance and the ability to exert influence in ways that you actually care about, but through vehicles that go beyond the pursuit of profit alone. And I'm not sure, that's, that's, that's what I differentiated in my book between the scammy kind of stakeholder capitalism, that's where I put Goldman Sachs and a lot of the Wall Street firms in that category, where it's really just a, another way to make a buck or protect your market power over the long run, from the authentic kind of stakeholder capitalism or the authentic kind of stakeholderism more broadly, where You actually care about the values that you seek to advance, but you're using your market power to be able to do it. And I think there's a reasonable debate to be had about which one's actually worse. The the first one is kind of scammy and inauthentic. The second one is actually potentially more frightening by actually concentrating real power in the hands of those who who are using their market power to influence power in the marketplace for ideas. That is a separate beast altogether from what I think is actually happening in Silicon Valley with respect to the big tech regulation of content on their websites today, where what I actually think is happening there is that the government, now government in power with Democrats in control of the House, but also the Senate and the White House, are effectively working with private companies to do through the back door what they directly can't do through the front door under the First Amendment, which is actually censoring political opposition. And I know that sounds conspiratorial, but actually if you look at just the data points over the last year, the most dramatic steps that these big tech firms have taken towards regulating so-called hate speech and misinformation on their sites actually came in close proximity to when they were called to testify actually in front of the House or in front of the Senate on exactly those same topics. And so what you see right now is a lot of powerful liberal lawmakers that are threatening those companies and saying, we're going to come after you. We're going to regulate you. We're going to break you up. We're going to make it swift. Many of those are exact quotes over the course of the last year. These guys get in their private jets, go back to the other coast, and they say, okay, we're going to do exactly what we were told to do because we know what they think counts as hate speech. We know what they think counts as misinformation. We're going to purge that from the internet. And by the way, there's a federal piece of legislation that immunizes us from any liability at the state level when we do that, that's Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And, and one of the arguments I actually advanced in my book, and I wrote in the Wall Street Journal about this earlier this year as well, is that the combination of that carrot and stick, the stick being the congressional threats and the carrot being Section 230 immunity that immunizes them from state liability when they go out and purge that content, actually creates, from a legal standpoint, state action in the mantle of private enterprise because there's actually longstanding jurisprudence which says that the government cannot delegate to private parties to effectuate what the government cannot directly do under the constitution. I think that's effectively what's happening with respect to the regulation of political content on the internet today, where under the garb of acting as private enterprises, they're really acting as instruments of the state, which is a different form of crony capitalism in reverse. And so we live in complicated times and they do not Not every narrative neatly fits into just the scammy stakeholder capitalism bucket. There's different things going on in different places. But uh, But one of my goals in the book is to parse each of these for the essence of what they are.
0: I want to bring Michael Moss into the conversation. Michael, you started out your talk by explaining that um, you were trying to go after big food, um, giant food, and what they were, their, their objectives. And I think what Vivek is saying is that, you know, we should be very careful of when giant food tries to enter into the public debates as to the regulation of food and at the whole gamut of other public issues that it deals with. As a, as a reporter and as a, someone opposed to what Big Food is trying to accomplish, how do you think of what Vivek is saying as it relates to um, stakeholder capitalism and using the, the public
4: field to argue for its benefit? I'm not sure Michael. Might be on, be on mute. Right. Okay, go ahead. Michael, I can hear you. Michael? Vivek, do you want to take that instead? Yeah, I mean I mean <laughs> sure, I think I think um, you know he may be on mute, but but if you're on mute come up and interrupt interrupt as you, as you see fit. My the basic point I would make is look, if you take Coca-Cola uh, issuing statements about uh voting law in Georgia last month that like it or not, like the law or not, like Coca-Cola or not, certainly sounded more like the statements of a super PAC than a soft drink manufacturer. I think the, part of what is going on is ultimately a different way of evading accountability for a real public reckoning and conversation around issues that go to the core of a business like Coca-Cola's, right? As I said earlier, making statements about a voting law, that's really easy work. The ability to to engage and reckon with the consequences of your product on the nationwide epidemic of diabetes and obesity, particularly if you will, in the black community, you know, is is a lot more difficult even as Coca-Cola continues to engage in anti racism training that teaches its employees on how to be less white. So I think for a lot of companies, stakeholder capitalism has proven convenient. The ESG movement has proven convenient the adoption of new of new theories of racial identity relating to white privilege and matters relating to race and anti-racism have proven a convenient way to deflect a conversation around the essence of what their core business model is actually about. So that's back to What I think of as the scammy kind of stakeholder capitalism. You know, I think what I was listening to that argument about Big Food, the same thing you could apply to big tech. There was a a good discussion earlier about the nature of addiction and whether the accountable parties ought to be either the consumers or the users or ought to be the companies that feed those addictions. I I have a separate view, which is more deeply that the recession of notions like religion and patriotism and virtue cultivating institutions in our nation's history probably are responsible for both because that leaves people more vulnerable to the kinds of things that they're sold that have addictive properties that makes it difficult to parse accountability between whether it belongs to the company or to the user. But putting that view to one side, I think that today for companies, it has proven to be a lot more convenient to be able to engage with these orthogonal social debates that have nothing to do with their business as a way of evading real dialogue and debate around the essence of, of what their core business practices are ultimately about. And, you know, personally, I think that we need to return to a world in which we can have, wherever you land, an open debate about those questions without being distracted by what I view as, as more or less irrelevant smokescreen debates about individual identity that these corporations are, are, taking, are fueling, but also debates that in turn actually create new divisions in our actual society in their own right by taking us and dividing us into, into particular tribes based on where corporations signal they land in one place versus another.
0: All right, let's go on to our, our final speaker, Paul Rossi. Paul uh, is a recent math teacher at the Grace, School Church, um, the Grace Church School in New York City. Um, he will speak now about uh, teaching race to children. Go ahead, Paul.
5: Uh, thanks, Larry. Thanks for having me on. Um, since I, I published the article on Very White Substack, I got, uh, got really interested in Uh, And and really the core of what this anti-racist pedagogy was doing um, at earlier and earlier grades. So I did did an analysis of the types of anti-racist education um, in elementary schools, and I wanted to focus on one particular aspect of that, which is the identity formation, or what's called um, identity work. And this is going on at, you know, thousands of schools across the country, I think, now, and it's really exploded since the murder of George Floyd. I'm sure many of the, the parents in the audience today will, will be familiar to you, um, and this identity work is based on a theory called intersectionality. So intersectionality concerns the multifaceted ways that individuals are perceived by society and the impact of those perceptions on success outcomes. Um, exa- so for example, Pollyanna, Inc. is a popular educational consultancy. Very, you know, it's used by many, many independent schools in New York and, and outside of New York, and it's it has a proprietary, quote, racial literacy curriculum. And this racial identity work starts in kindergarten. So there's eight lessons uh, for each grade, and at kindergarten level, students are taught to see color as defining for characters in children's stories. So they have you know, stories are like brown bear, brown bear, what do you see? Red is a dragon, green is a chili pepper. Uh, and in this way, children are, are introduced and taught to name and label their own skin color and identify surface-level similarities and differences. And by the end of kindergarten, teachers who feel confident to do so are urged to explicitly tie this color awareness to racial identity. Uh, This is framed as an advanced activity, something that teachers are supposed to aspire to but not push for too early. Um, But ultimately, they're going to do that when the students are ready for it. In later grades, these identity wheel exercises uh, develop a further understanding of these socialized identities. And the way this works is the child places his name and personality traits in the center. And then once that core has been established, the main focus is, is really takes place, which is labeling wedges or spheres in this outer ring, which focus on the group characteristics like race, class, gender, disability status, et cetera. And the participants will share and discuss the content in these orbiting circles. And the geometry of these, these wheels uh, and the far greater time spent on their periphery uh, reinforce this priority that the externally and social-constructed aspects of the self expresses group, group membership are what's really important. Uh, back to, you know, specifically with Pollyanna and the sixth-grade curriculum, they, they asked students to revise Webster's definition of identity, which is, quote, the distinguishing character or personality of an individual uh, by highlighting these external and group markers of identity. So teachers are told to encourage sociological identity markers and ideas and students to think about their physical and social identities as well as their inner world. So what's prioritized, again, as salient is always the group categorization, often based on how you're perceived in society. Um, The way I think about it is that if the self is an apple, the implication from these activities is that the most important part of who you are is the skin. Uh, Students are urged to treat each other's multifaceted social identities with empathy, kindness, and acceptance, which are all very important, but absent are the many other defining personal and practical virtues characteristic of healthy growth, such as emotional resilience, conscientiousness, industriousness, consistency, loyalty, fidelity, persistence under adversity, patience, and temperance in the face of opposing views. Once defined by these group markers, the individual feels pressure to internalize political, politicized ideas, beliefs, and priorities that are attributed to these groups. So faith in, one, in one's individual attributes as a bridge to success is transferred into faith and in solidarity with the perceived group identity and its goals. So in this way, the locus of identity moves from the internal and the individual to the external and the collective. As students gain a deeper understanding of how racist policies influenced our history and present-day disparities, their now externally based identities are now tied to power and privilege. So this is the next stage of the game. Um, To illustrate that, I'm going to quote from the website of the DEI consultancy called the NOVA Collective, and this is characteristic of this rhetorical move, which many of these consultancies do. Quote, things we hold that don't impact the way we receive resources or gain access or privilege in society are seen as personal identities. And those things that lump us into groups and either give us power and privilege in society or inhibit power and privilege in society, those are seen as social identities. So this quote uh, is illustrative because it implies there's this hierarchy of significance. The social takes priority over the personal, which is defined in the negative. Social identity establishes one's value in the world, which has inscribed, defined, and characterized that individual. And most remarkably to me, the personal character, the personal identity, is reduced to a kind of fanciful figment, which has no influence or impact on how we gain access to resources in society. Furthermore, now that personal identity has been dispensed with, a moral valence can be ascribed to one's social identity. And the way this works is that the power that people with certain social identities enjoy over others based on solely the perception in the world, is therefore arbitrary. It's unrelated to personal agency, competency, and choice. And therefore it's unfair and demanding of redress. Uh, so you know, what does content of our character as a phrase even mean when that's defined as irrelevant or defined out of existence? At this point, you've now taken that at- external locus of identity and it's become an external locus of control. And, you know, research suggests that people with, this, with an internal locus of control are more adept at navigating intellectual and moral challenges, whereas externals tend to feel they have less control over their fate, they're more stressed, they're more prone to clinical depression. Uh, and, you know, external locus of control also correlates with something called identity foreclosure, uh, which is, you know, a concept developed by James Marcia. Um, it's a stage of identity in which an individual fetishizes a fixed identity but hasn't explored other options or ideas. And this is most common in young adolescents. And at this stage, the individual has just adopted simplistic traits and qualities and foreclosed identities. People with foreclosed identities correlate highly with measures of authoritarianism and ideological rigidity. Uh, so my, my, um, my thinking is that you know, having, having witnessed this, um, at the school I taught at is that this anti-racist identity work by setting an external locus for identity exacerbates these outcomes. And We live in a world where narcissism, depression, anxiety and suicidal ideation are all on the rise among adolescents. And I suspect there's also a connection between this kind of identity work which is now common in schools and the existential erasure that, that many young people and even people in college feel when their peers fail to say use the preferred pronouns or when they don't see a representation of quote people who look like them in art culture and institutional settings. So by transferring your identity to this external uh, group identity then you're dependent on society to perceive you a certain way and if that that becomes arbitrary or ambivalent that is I think a, a terrible existential threat for children who have been raised you know, by this type of pedagogy, which you know, really, in some ways, it has a lot to do with race, but in some ways, it's, it's independent, particularly in, in, in race. Um, but I'm really hopeful that you know, future researchers will shed more light on this question. Um, uh, and you know, my, my personal feeling and, and the, the real essence of my objection to anti-racist pedagogy, the way it's practiced today, is that you know, race is a falsehood. We know that race is a falsehood. We know that we live in a raced society where racism exists. And you know, it's carried through by you know, in monstrous ways historically. Um, but when you focus on, on creating and recreating, reaffying identities around this false construct, you create a kind of learned helplessness around it. And you know, I, I really think that there is not a lot of evidence you know, i be interested to see it. but I look for it, and I haven't seen the kind of evidence for the effectiveness of this so-called, you know, this so-called anti-racism. It's I don't, I don't understand how you can have an anti-racism that is pro-race. Um, I understand the, the rationales for it, but I don't think it's effective. And um, you know, my experience with it is that it promotes uh, resentment, futility, depression. So I suggest we return to a kind of anti-racism that is truly anti-race, that it asserts that race is a fiction, but emphasizes racial, you know de-identification, stressing, instead, the uh, the power of personal virtues and agency in overcoming uh, disparate outcomes.
0: Thanks, Paul. Um, Sure. Maybe, uh, could you give some more examples of what this curriculum entails and how it differs uh, as you get older um, Mm -hmm. from K to 6 and maybe how it distinguishes in junior high and how it proceeds into high school?
5: Well, as I think, like the main the main thing I think that I saw in Grace in ninth grade, and uh, was that they really reinforce racial identification. So, so without racial identification, whether you know white, black, Latino, Asian, whatever, you it, they can't lard on top of it all of the responsibilities and all of the you know the the important ways of seeing that they use to frame history literature uh, and you know the certain and all of the activism that flows from that so that takes many many forms it could be you know in in a history class um, they they explicitly are going to divide up uh, the history in terms of the the marginalizations of certain groups and the privilege of of whites for example and that through that critical lens it's called the critical lens um, everything can be interpreted. So that could be, you know, you could read Shakespeare that way. You could, you could learn about any particular event in history based on the power dynamics and the groups that are involved in those power dynamics. So it really affects, it's not limited to, you know, a certain set of courses. It really does bleed into so many different um, subjects. And, you know, it's, it's, It it, it is, you know, currently, at at Grace, it's the cornerstone. It's one of the foundations of our mission statement and values. And how
0: much time is spent on this stuff? Is it, uh, are there assemblies on it? Is there weeks set aside for this type of discussion? Is it a, um, is it very minor or has it become central to the core mission?
5: It's become central to the core mission. So we have all, uh, all of the above. Um, it's, it's ingrained in, you know, all of the humanities courses. There, are, there is a separate curriculum, community and di- diversity curriculum for ninth and tenth grade that's focused on it. There are over 18 affinity groups, uh, you know, groups that are, you know, collective by uh, racial, gender, sexual orientation markers that, that are optional. In, in workshops, and yes, we have weeks devoted, you know, this year we had, you know, uh, we have weeks uh, where the normal curriculum is suspended and, and uh, these types of issues are focused on. There are workshops, there's a, a panoply of workshops that sound like you're reading a college catalog um, on, uh, you know, inequity, racial inequity, gender inequity, um, and so on. Can a child opt out? No, no, You, it's, it's mandatory that you attend these sessions. Uh, it is, you know, every child I think I mentioned in the, the article that I wrote, uh, every child must sign um, a student life agreement acknowledging their biases, acknowledging their commitment to to identify them, and agreeing to be held accountable when they don't. Um, and, you know, you, no, you, you can't opt out. It's, it's it's they're all required credits for graduation the particular community and diversity programming you know as well as um, during these workshops everyone's expected to sign up for them and the dean will will track down anyone who doesn't
0: and if and if you disagree what happens
5: well uh... what happens uh... you know it's it's uh... it i i teach math so you know i'm not um... As plugged into these courses as a student would be, uh, but I can speak from my own experience when I questioned some of these, uh, some of the foundations for these beliefs, particularly racial identification. Uh, you know, I'm, I was, um, and, I, and I didn't apologize for the, for the harm that was attributed to that. I was, you know, my class, I was relieved in my classes. So, um, you know, there were definitely consequences for me. I've also heard from other students that they are, there's a, a very strong chilling effect for questioning intersectionality as a framework for understanding not only, you know, race relations in society generally, but also just your identity per se. So if you are white identified, for example, um, you are expected to move to a place where you identify yourself as such. And if you do not, um, you know, that will be, that will be problematic or, you know, that problematic is what it's called.
0: And so what happens to the child who uh, questions intersectionality and it's problematic? Does he,
5: I don't know. I mean, I actually have never, I, I, I've been, I, I hope that a child will. Um, I had never, I've never seen uh, the outcome of a direct challenge to the belief structure. I mean, it was difficult for me to do so. I can't imagine what that would be like for a child to do so. Uh, although I know that a lot of the, the kids, you know, falsify their preferences in that regard. I know that a lot of them don't agree with the framework. I know that a lot of parents don't agree with the framework. People, you know, many, many, you know, dozens of them have talked to me about it. Parents have talked to me about it. But to do so publicly is the consequences are, are quite, you know, severe socially, I think, you know, as well as, what might happen um, to you. I mean, I know that I mentioned this in my article as well, if, if, a, if, a, if a student tends to ev- ev- evince be, you know, behaviors of resistance to the ideology in, say, ninth grade, then you know, there, there was an email chain where that particular type of resistance would be flagged and that student would have a conversation. The student would be pulled aside and there would be a conversation about it. Now, I don't know what those conversations look like. I know that they happened. I wasn't a part of them, but I was on the email chain where that was discussed and that was widely celebrated as a positive thing to do. Um, and what this resistance might entail would be simply being silent or saying, you know, or why can't we all get along or having a persisting in what's called a colorblind view of the world where you don't see color. Actually, in this, in this framing, Anti-ra- of anti-racism not seeing color as evidence of racism. So I think there's actually a, a video that went viral recently of a student um, in another school who um, was being shown, a class was being shown a picture of, of two girls, and the girls were black, and the teacher was was insisting that what was most important about that picture was that they were black. And when he showed it to a student, and the student challenged him and said, I just see two girls hanging out, just chilling. The teacher, you know, pushed and pressed and prodded and eventually lo- kind of lost his temper. That the student didn't acknowledge the most important thing about that picture is that the girls were black. So that kind of, of forced color sight, you know, I call it color sight. I mean, what does is, what is color sight uh, tell you about a person? What kinds of assumptions are being stressed that you should make about somebody because of what you see in their color? Uh, those are the kinds of things that are being pushed, uh, and it's—I think it's totally counterproductive and, and disheartening. Uh, and I really think that we need a different way of addressing racism, which does occur, you know, and and does occur in society as well as in these schools. There are there are um, incidents that happen, um, and they need to be addressed. But doing it in this in this way, I think, it just has so many more so many more debilitating aspects psychologically and developmentally. Uh,
0: Another aspect of this besides race uh, relates to privilege itself. Um, I understand Mm -hmm. that uh, the Grace Church School has assemblies uh, where they try to show privilege within its own class. So they'll say something like, all right, here's the class. Everyone um, who... um, is not on financial aid, stay standing. Um, everyone mm-hmm. who uh, has two cars, stay standing. Uh, everyone that goes on vacation outside of the state, stay standing. Uh, those of you who have the more than one home, stay standing uh, until there's a very small minority of the students who um, by definition have the greatest privilege according to these criteria. Um, what are we supposed to why would we want to single out students uh, who have privilege and then denigrate them in front of their, uh, their colleagues?
5: I don't know. I mean, it really is, it really is disturbing that, that they do this kind of thing. I think it has particularly – it's bad if, you, if adults were to do it. It's, it's ten times worse if you make adolescents do it um, because adolescents are so status conscious and, um, you know, conscious of um, – you know, fair. You know, I really—it's—it's it's, you know, clickish, clickish behavior is already prevalent in adolescent. I don't know why you would why you would push that. I think that the the way that you, the reasons I think for doing that, and I'm kind of putting my mind in what what they would be thinking, putting my thoughts about what they would be thinking is they want to make the claim that you know the unspoken implication is that the students who are who are left standing are white, and so you know. That is making the point that whiteness carries privileges. Now, in New York City, uh, you, would, you, get, you may get that result. If you did the same thing in Kentucky, in particular rural areas of West Virginia, you're going to get a different result. Uh, and so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a sophistic uh, sort of exercise uh, and I think that it is—it tends—it is itself—it's tends, it it's a, a foregone conclusion that they know is going to send a certain message, um, and so I think it's—it's it's, you know it, it's bad in practice, and it's it's actually not illustrative of what they think it is.
0: And how is it uh, this concept of identity and intersectionality and racial curriculum? How has it changed over the last five to 10 years, both in its broadness and its breadth?
5: It's gotten broader. It's, it's, it's gotten deeper into, you know, as you say, and deeper into different subjects. Um, in, my, in my particular topic, math, uh, we've, we've had to adopt, after a self-study of our department, we, we had to uh, adopt an anti-racist uh, plank uh where we'd work in um you know i think I think there are some aspects of say you know talking talking about the discoveries of mathematics, mathematics being a global a, a you know a global thing that yes absolutely you know the great their great cultures have contributed so much to mathematics and it's not any particular um you know culture necessarily, so like that kind of thing is fine um but when you start. Telling me that objectivity is characteristic of white supremacy, well, then you've you've lost me, and you've actually you've actually started to say something which is terribly condescending to to people who who aren't white or aren't seen as white. I would say, and um, I will I will fight that until the end of the end of my life. <laughs> um, so, I think that it's taken on it's taken on um, I think racism, racism in particular has, has exhibited so much concept creep over the last five to ten years uh, that now even things like whiteness and blackness and, are, are these sort of floating signifiers that can land on anyone at any particular time, kind of like a ghost. And they can hijack and be used as a rationale for dismissing evidence, arguments. Um, it's now become sort of like a universal cud- cudgel so that, you know, the blackness of a black person is, is no longer uh, a value of their lived experience. Now, if, if they have the wrong opinion, well, then it's internalized whiteness. And, you know, it, 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 is, it is just this, this very, you know, I, people describe it as a religion. I really think there is a lot to that. And, um, but, you know, anti-racism, when, it, when, when the word racism has undergone such concept, concept creep, anti-racism becomes a witch hunt. Uh, which is what happens when concepts broaden and take on significance in every context, uh, then you're fighting, you're, you're fighting shadows, and the shadows are everywhere. And that's where we are now.
0: Um, this is the part of the show where I try to end on a note of optimism. Historically, <laughs> during a, a period of COVID, we get uh, down in every episode of uh, death and destruction. Paul, I'm going to start with you. What are you optimistic about?
5: I'm optimistic that um, people across the country are uh, making sanity a priority in education, and that they are forming dozens of groups in the last, you know, five to six months. I've I've been working with a group called Fair Foundation Against Intolerance and Racism, and I've seen an explosion of activity, often happening under the radar, of course of the mainstream media, but uh, where parents are definitely getting involved that we're unaware of this kind of education, you know, a, a year ago. And I think the scales have fallen from a lot of people's eyes and there's a real de- desire force for a sane alternative curriculum in these areas. So that, that gives me optimism.
0: Vivek, what are you optimistic about?
5: Yeah, look, I'm, I'm optimistic about the fact that I
4: think people have been for the last decade, especially younger people, hungry for a cause, hungry for a sense of purpose, hungry for meaning and identity in ways that have been long unfulfilled. I think a lot of what Paul just talked about is in part a symptom of the black hole at the center of our kind of collective hunger for purpose and identity in a moment where things that used to fill that void for us have have receded. And I guess I'm optimistic about what these, albeit toxic, in my opinion, movements about racial identity and, and anti-racism and critical theory have done, I think that they have also unlocked in the counter pushback against it, hopefully an opportunity to fill that void with more civic education in our country. And where I think we're beginning to see a trend in certain states of re-implementing civic education in terms of describing not just our founding ideals, but the ways in which we've fallen short of them, but not just the way we've fallen short of them so much so that we forget what those ideals were in the first place. And and I'm optimistic about this nascent trend of civic education that I think is actually going to go a long way all the way through education and even all the way through some of the themes that I discussed in terms of corporate purpose and institutional purpose later, that if we are on on a solid enough foundation where we believe that we have already shared something in common from a young age, that we might be under less pressure to do superficial things later on to make up for that deeper deficit. And, uh, and I hope that trend continues by way of the recent early birth of civic education across the country that we've begun to see in the last couple of years. Dietrich, what
0: are you optimistic about?
3: Uh, I think I'm optimistic about the fact that, that we're at a point where the idea of kind of like continued rapid material growth in kind of our material living standards is, is is no longer like critical um as it was in the past or right? uh, and so we we're at a point where discussions like Beck and Paul are talking about discussions just kind of all, a number of societal dimensions can be had without kind of this looming question of like well but but what if that reduces our material living standards or what some of those questions are are we're kind of solving them, right? Uh, distribution issues exist, these questions still, we haven't gotten everybody above a certain level, but but we can have the discussion because we clearly can produce a minimum, a high minimum level of material living standards for essentially everybody. So that gets us the opportunity to change the arguments we're having, so to speak. Uh, and we're not, arguments aren't gonna go away, but I think now we can, we have the opportunity to have arguments about about more nuances about how we construct our society. So it makes me optimistic that we can, we can touch on these things um, in a, I don't know, can I have maybe a more rational discussion about them without worrying about uh, where we're gonna eat tomorrow.
0: Okay, that ends uh, today's session, uh, but I wanna make a plug for next week's show. Sunday, May 23rd, our first speaker will be Alex Tabarak who is an economist at George Mason. He has recently written about the risks and rewards of COVID vaccines and treatments. I hope to learn from Alex about how to behave, work and play for those already vaccinated and for those who have not been vaccinated. Our second speaker is my very good friend, uh, Desmond Lockman, who is the former chief emerging market economist at Solomon Brothers and now at AEI. Desmond will speak about the Biden administration's desire to go big on its stimulus and infrastructure Desmond will focus on whether we should have an expansionary fiscal monetary policies during our current upswing. Our third speaker will be Sam Weinberg from Stanford, who is a professor in both the education and history departments. Sam will discuss his recent research that has been on the Internet and how people judge the credibility of digital content. My co-host next week will be Catherine Manaspian, who is a president of North American Commerce for Stanley, Black & Decker. Catherine will host a panel of experts on the future of retail. The first retail panelist will be Deborah Weinswig, who is the founder of CoreSight Research, where she focuses on retail innovation and technology. Deborah was the former head of the City Equity Research for the Global Staples and Consumer Team and was the number one II investor-ranked analyst for her subject for nine years. Our final speaker next week will be Jason Goldberg, who is the Chief Commerce Strategy Officer at Publicis and is known as the retail geek. Jason is interested in what makes a great retail experience online and in-store and how to use technology to improve the shopper marketing experience. Jason co-hosts the Jason and Scott Show, which is the top-ranked e-commerce podcast. If you're interested in listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any of our previous episodes or wish to read a transcript, you can find them all on our website, whathappensnextin 6 Minutes.com. Replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbeam, and Spotify. I would now like to thank uh, today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned next week on Sunday to find out what happens next. Thank you so much, and you may disconnect at this time. Bye-bye.